0: So when we're trying to define gut health, we can definitely talk about an objective and subjective experience of digestion, and we can definitely evaluate disease processes. But when we're talking about gut health and trying to just like aim at the gut microbiome, we really can't establish that as a root cause of health or disease We don't know what a healthy microbiome looks like because healthy is different from person to person. And a lot of inter-individual variability makes it really hard to say like, oh, this must be the healthiest microbiome.
1: Well, that's interesting, Gabrielle, because if you listen to (laughs) some of these influencers, everybody's got bad (laughs) gut health. (laughs) Oh,
2: right. (laughs) And the best way to help your gut health.
0: Yeah. Good of all evil. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People are trying to sell you a problem, so you'll buy their solution.
2: Welcome to Cut the Crap with Beth and Matt, the world's number one no-bullshit health and fitness podcast.
1: Are you ready to cut the crap with your diet and exercise, get strong as fuck, and build a healthy relationship with food? Then you've come to the right place.
2: Let's Let's go! go. If you'd like to support us and the podcast, join our Patreon, where you get exclusive content, which consists of monthly workouts you can do at home or at the gym, monthly challenges that are either strength, habit, or mindset-based, and access to over 100-plus low-calorie, high-protein, family-friendly meals. These are all designed by a professional chef who is certified in nutrition. These recipes are already in MyFitnessPal for easy fucking tracking. New recipes are also added each week.
1: We believe that fitness is for everyone, so this is our way of getting you started on your health and fitness journey at a price most everyone can afford. So what the fuck are you waiting for? We'll see you in the Patreon.
2: Hi. Hi,
1: Gabrielle. How are you? Doing well. How are you?
0: Amazing. Good.
1: Amazing. Well, Gabrielle, before we get into the the nitty gritty, could you introduce yourself for the audience and give yourself
0: a little introduction here? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Dr. Gabrielle Fondero, known uh, on Instagram as vitamin PhD. Um, I have a bachelor's in exercise science and my doctorate is in human metabolism. And I studied the link between the gut microbiome and peripheral metabolism, mostly skeletal muscle. I finished that in 2014. I went on to teach in exercise science for about four years and then I left academia to pursue self-employment and my current career as a science communicator, science journalist, and a flourishing health coach.
1: Amazing. Which the science communicator aspect, that's kind of how we discovered you. Our yeah. friend Noah highly recommended you to us. I can't believe I'd never heard of you before that, but I'm so thankful that we, we came across your path. Yeah. He spoke very highly of you.
0: <laughs> oh, that's really nice. He's he's great. We've had a couple of podcasts and he's just a really great communicator also.
2: Yeah, he is. Yeah, I've, I've saw a lot of your videos with him on TikTok.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's like his platform now. I don't have a TikTok. I'm I'm cool well, for him to that, that he, for him to be putting me on that platform um that'll probably be my next step.
1: So your thing is the gut then, yeah? Is that safe to say?
0: Yeah, I would say that. I mean, gut health isn't really a clearly defined concept. Yes. <laughs> so um, I, I speak to a lot of it, but there are some questions that come my way that are you know, more appropriate for a clinician. Um, so that's why I usually couch it as like I'm communicating the science of the gut microbiome and it just happens to be associated with a lot of different aspects of health and disease. Okay, for sure.
1: So you you set the bar high there by saying we don't know really what gut health is. What does the current research suggest to us? What good gut health is versus bad gut health? Or can we even distinguish between the two?
0: Right. Yeah. So we can't really distinguish between the two from a gut microbiome perspective, um, but I've kind of created a working definition of gut health that I use in these conversations because then we can start to differentiate between like which aspect we're actually talking about. Uh, So I call it the three D's of gut health. So we have digestion. That's basically just the, the objective process of digestion and absorption. And then also the subjective experience of the digestive process and then excretion as well. So in other words, how are you feeling when you're digesting your food? And then how are you feeling in terms of like your bowel frequency and bowel habits? So that's digestion, that's one of the D's. The other D would be disease. So that is the presence or absence of an organic or functional disease. So an organic disease is one that actually affects the tissues. So something like ulcerative colitis where we actually have intestinal tissue damage and obviously also the function is affected. Whereas a functional disease is something like irritable bowel syndrome, where the tissues look normal but they're not behaving in the way that we would expect them to. Um, And if someone does have a GI disease, are they able to manage their symptoms? That's disease. And then the third D is diversity. And that's the diversity of the gut microbiome. So diversity refers to both the richness or the number of different um, species or types of organisms that we have. And then also the evenness or the relative proportions. So generally speaking, even though people might assume that we don't want any potential pathogens, we only want like quote unquote good microbes, That's actually not the case. We really do rely on some of these potential pathogens to keep our immune system informed. And it's actually kind of about the balance of the beneficial and neutral microbes to the potential pathogens that can keep those potential pathogens in check. But we don't have any established reference ranges for the different types or ratios of microbes that we would want to see. And we actually haven't been able to identify every gut microbe present. So even though we've like sequenced the human genome, we haven't done that with the intestinal genome because it has somewhere around like 10 times more genes, maybe more than that. Um, And we're looking at potentially thousands of, of species. So there's still a lot that we don't know about what might be kind of ideal diversity. So when we're trying to define gut health, you know, we can definitely talk about an objective and subjective experience of digestion, and we can definitely evaluate disease processes. But when we're talking about gut health and trying to just like aim at the gut microbiome, we really can't establish that as a root cause of health or disease We don't know what a healthy microbiome looks like because healthy is different from person to person. And a lot of inter-individual variability makes it really hard to say like, oh, this must be the healthiest microbiome because it probably is something like, you know, health is very individual as well. Like what, what does healthy look like? We really can't define that, you know, in terms of human health either.
1: Well, that's interesting, Gabrielle, because if you listen to any of the, um, (laughs) <laughs> Some of these influencers everybody's got bad <laughs> gut health <laughs> oh
0: right And the best way to help your gut health yeah of all evil. yeah yep yeah, yeah yeah oh yeah I that's what, like in in this area um I often say that people are trying to sell you a problem so you'll buy their solution
1: Yeah. And I'm so happy to hear you say that. And, and I know you talk out a lot about experts and self-proclaimed experts and things like that. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's essentially what it comes down to is, is people that are calling themselves these experts and then they're convincing you, you have this problem and then selling you the solution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when it comes to like all these different experts, where do we see these experts come from? These And I I say experts, right, loosely, because they're not experts, obviously. When I hear somebody call themselves an expert, I, I just roll my eyes, right? Like, I don't see somebody such as yourself calling yourself an expert. Like, you're a science communicator and you're an educator. and
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually try to tell people, like, I don't call myself an expert and, like, maybe don't call me that either because <laughs> that, that might love me in with a group of people that I, I don't necessarily want to be associated with. You know, I do try to maintain a charitable perspective that most people probably don't have bad intentions you know, they do want to help people and they see this area that is so new and exciting, and it's just full of opportunity and potential. And if they're coming at this from the perspective of the gut being a, a potentially, you know, a root cause of disease, like there are some schools of thought, there are some practitioners that have been trained with the idea of root causes. So any, any sort of disease has a, a single root cause. And, and so I think they're trying to develop or promote potential interventions and might not be as conservative about the research substantiating those, you know, or the evidence that substantiates those. And they might be thinking if my clients um, or patients feel better after this intervention Then either a it must be working or b even if it's just a placebo effect even if it's just pseudoscience what's the harm if it helps them feel better there's definitely validity to that i mean at the end of the day we want to help people feel better but at the same time if a person can't make an informed decision because they've been given misinformation or disinformation i think that that's really the issue is that they could be replacing A rigorously tested and, you know, FDA approved conventional treatment with an alternative medicine practice that's not actually treating or managing their disease and it's putting their health at risk or they're spending an exorbitant amount of money on Tests or interventions that aren't substantiated or that aren't actually clinically relevant. So they're getting they're getting some information, but it's being misinterpreted either by them or by their practitioner. And once again, the issue comes down to not being able to provide informed consent and really being misled. Um, And so even if a person has good intentions, if they're causing harm, the intentions don't really make up for that.
1: Right. Right, right. With our gut microbiome, there's still so much we don't really know yet, right? Like it's just everything we know we've really just recently learned. Is that true?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In about the last 10 years or so, there's been about 50,000 articles that have been published on the gut microbiome. So it's, it's really astounding. Um, it's been almost, uh, you know, an exponential increase in the the number and types of studies that have come out because it's so new uh, and, and technology has advanced so quickly, there's been kind of a lack of standardization. It's like we've, we've gone toward the side of progressing as quickly as possible and using new technologies sort of at the expense of repetition and standardization. And it's not that these are unknown problems. I mean, there, you can find editorials and publications where researchers have pointed out some of these issues like, hey, we don't have, you know, standard definitions of terms that people use all the time, like dysbiosis, if it lacks a standard definition, it can really become kind of meaningless if it can mean pretty much anything. And there are la- there's lack of standardization in terms of uh, sample collection and processing. And when we're using, for example, a fecal sample to determine what, you know, to, to as sort of a surrogate for the gut microbiome, and we have labs processing them in different ways, that's going to affect what we can measure in that stool sample. Uh, There's also, uh, there are some potential issues with translating animal models to humans and extrapolating. And, you know, and so there are so many things that still need to be standardized and improved upon and kind of, you know, debug. And so that's what really needs to happen. And we need to collect a lot of data in the same way that we've done with, you know, large epidemiological studies in in nutrition. You know, we have the interventions, we've got so many RCTs. And we have these observational studies so we can say, oh, there was this, you know, multiple cohorts of 800,000 people. And we saw like consistently that whole brains are associated with, you know, protection against colorectal cancer. That's really strong evidence. And we have the mechanistic data and everything else. And we really don't have that yet when it comes to gut microbiome science.
1: So it's an exciting time then to be in your field and really, because you can, right. you're, you're at the budding edge of all the research. And I know just here, um I can't remember the exact study, but University of Toledo just did a new study. Uh, it was an animal model, but I can't really remember what it was, but I, I read about it and I was like, wow, this is really cool. This is happening in my backyard. And there's
0: just so much that they don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. Yeah. There are just hugely understudied areas and so many questions still. So it is, it's really exciting, but it, it leaves us kind of lacking and probably, you know, wanting in terms of practical applications that just, yeah, Yeah. definitely a challenge there. Mm -hmm.
2: I have a few questions only because we work with people with nutrition and we always get asked about supplements, you know, should I be taking a prebiotic? Should I be taking a probiotic? So if you can explain, you know, what is a prebiotic, a probiotic, and do we even need them?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So a probiotic is a live microorganism. Um, In most cases, they're going to be bacteria, but there are yeast-based probiotics that when ingested in adequate amounts, which is really key, confers some benefit to the host. And so we, in most cases, we're looking at either strains of lactobacillus or bifidobacterium. And then like I mentioned, there are some yeast-based probiotics that's usually going to be an Espulardi. And their applications are fairly limited and they're also strain specific. So for example, if you have a child with antibiotic associated diarrhea, uh, you would want to give them a lactobacillus rhamnosus GG that would be effective for them. But if you're an adult with antibiotic associated diarrhea, you'd be taking S. If you wanted to do this in the most scientific evidence-based way, there is not a kitchen sink probiotic that everyone should be taking like a multivitamin. So prebiotics are energy sources for microbes and prebiotics are usually in the form of fiber resistant starch. We don't have to supplement with those because we get them from our diet. So whole grains, fruits, vegetables, beans, nuts, those all provide prebiotics or another word for that would be microbe accessible carbohydrates. Uh, Now prebiotics specifically are used by beneficial microbes. Whereas microbe accessible carbohydrates could be used by just any microbe. So, even like the neutral ones or even the potential pathogens. But a lot of microbes, especially those that live in our large intestine, are what are called obligate anaerobes. So, that means that they, they don't tolerate oxygen and they have to make energy uh, in the absence of oxygen. And so, they rely really heavily on glucose. That glucose is stored in these dietary fibers that resist our own digestive enzymes. So they pass through our small intestine to the large intestine, um, and then they can be metabolized by the microbes there. And that's where most of our gut microbiome is located. So you could supplement with a prebiotic if you wanted to, but like really it wouldn't be as cost effective as just having a a wide variety of dietary fibers. Uh, And then there are are symbiotics as well, which combine a probiotic uh, with its preferred prebiotic um, or what we think it might prefer. So you get the microbe and an energy source together in one capsule. There's really no evidence that you would benefit from probiotic supplementation if you're a healthy individual and you don't have like IBS or um, inflammatory bowel disease or diarrhea due to some you know, antibiotics or, or a gut bug or whatever. Uh, if you're a healthy individual, then you're most likely going to be basically putting your money into the toilet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're kind <gonna> of going in <laughs> and out the other and, and they won't, they won't really, there's really nothing to be done. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that we need to like optimize everything and, and right. what optimal looks like yet. Right.
2: So would it be safe to say that antibiotics do affect your gut in
0: some form? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Antibiotics absolutely will have some level of influence really depends on the the type of antibiotic and then like the duration um, for which it's taken. There are some that seem to have pretty weak effects like amoxicillin doesn't seem to have a significant impact on the gut microbiome as a whole. And um, gut seem to b- bounce back pretty quickly after that. Others that might be a little bit more intense um, like ciproflaxin, that seems to have a pretty significant impact on bifidobacteria. Now, obviously there's gonna be an impact on other microbes like the pathogenic microbes that we're trying to knock out so I am in no way saying that we need to not use antibiotics. We absolutely do need to use antibiotics. We just need to make sure that we're using them as directed. Uh, if you don't use them for long enough or you're not taking you know, the whole course of antibiotics, you could then induce some antimicrobial resistant gene transfer. So essentially the microbes that have survived have some sort of genetic advantage. They can pass that on to fellow microbes within the same generation. So they don't need to reproduce essentially in the same way we do to pass our genes on. They can just say, hey, neighbor, like here's this gene that will make you resistant to this antibiotic. So it can happen pretty quickly. And that's really a significant problem. I mean, it really is a public health issue, these these antimicrobial resistant genes. And we end up with things like, you know, MRSA and whatnot. But yeah, so yeah, antibiotics do, I mean, by design, they, have, they impact um, bacteria, but in most cases, guts do seem to, gut microbiome seem to bounce back pretty quickly. And that's even without any intervention, just kind of going back to, you know, exercising and eating a, a wide variety of dietary fibers. And then if you do have the antibiotic associated diarrhea, the best probiotic would be the S. which is the yeast that's not going to be impacted by those uh, antibiotics. Okay. So, talking about dietary fibers
1: and prebiotics and things like that. I'm going to go get a little crazy here. So carnivore, one of the big things that they talk about is how c- fiber is a myth and you don't, mm. that, 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 that's what we ask them, right? Well, how are you going to, how do you plan on getting your, your fiber intake? You know, no, we don't need fiber. It's a myth. Like, like right. I, I don't even know how you could reasonably say that. I guess th- that's not a question, but more of a statement, like how ridiculous <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, yeah, I agree. Um, I actually I wrote an article on the carnivore diet for Barbend. If anyone wants to check that out, it was like a, it was like the carnivore diet for strength athletes. And mm-hmm. I really went to the websites of the two kind of most prominent carnivore proponents. And looked at the research that they were using, you know, as their own evidence. And I used those studies to talk about the issues with the carnivore diet and, and kind of like the plot holes in their um, narrative about fiber not being necessary. And I think that, you know, if, if you couch it in that way, like is fiber absolutely necessary as like an essential nutrient, will you die without fiber? No, but <laughs> that doesn't mean that it is unnecessary.
1: Way to live, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's
0: like that's not the, that's not a, a the, an accurate like logical progression. And oh, we must not need it at all. It does have uh, numerous health benefits. It provides a great deal of protection against colorectal cancer. Helps to reduce the odds of experiencing constipation. It obviously, as I mentioned, feeds our gut microbes. And so I would say that even if it's not an essential nutrient in the same way that, you know, protein and and fats are, it would be essential to the gut microbiome. And and it's very important for, for human health and disease prevention.
2: Yeah. Fruits and veggies. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You're damn veggies. Imagine (laughs) that,
2: right?
1: (laughs) What is the our gut gut microbiome really even responsible for? I there's there's been people out there that say that it's our second, second brain. Second brain. Is there yeah. any validity to that?
0: There is, and uh, I think that's also sort of um Maybe they've borrowed from like the gut sort of being termed the second brain because it has its own nervous system, the enteric nervous system, uh, and that regulates gut motility or like the the organized intestinal uh, smooth muscle contractions, independent of the brain. There is still interaction, but we don't need to get brain signals sent down, you know, via the spinal cord to the intestines for them to function, um, because we use that still, but you know, the enteric nervous system is just sort of self-contained. Gut microbes do have an influence on our brain. And that can be both via the vagus nerve, which is sort of a a bidirectional, like a two-way highway that links the brain uh, directly to the intestines and then also through the periphery. So they make either neurotransmitters or precursors to neurotransmitters that can bind to receptors in the brain. Most of the gut-brain research is still based in rodent models. Uh, so we don't have a, a, a lot of like strong, you know, replicated uh, human studies. But there is some evidence that, uh, for example, probiotic supplementation could enhance the efficacy of um, medications for mood disorders. So it's not that we would like replace, you know, our antidepressant with probiotics or that we would say, I'm going to, you know, cure my ADHD with like a better diet or something like that. But there's a link there. It's just that we're still exploring what that is. But yeah, so, so the gut microbiome is probably responsible for pretty much, I don't want to say responsible for, but it is linked to most organ systems in the human body. Um, So we have evidence from rodent models that if an animal is born into a sterile environment and reared without a gut microbiome at all, that across the board, they uh, develop abnormally. So their brain doesn't develop normally. They have uh, dysregulated behavior. Their immune system uh, doesn't mature. They fail to thrive. So they don't gain uh, as much weight. Um, So it does look like the gut microbiome plays a role in energy harvesting, like how many calories we're able to absorb from our diet. It definitely plays a role in the uh, development of our immune system. It. As I mentioned, definitely plays a role in brain development and probably to some extent behavior. There's also uh, evidence in rodents and in humans that it plays an endocrine function. So the, the microbes can produce compounds that bind to receptors on our skeletal muscle and on our body fat and can potentially regulate metabolism and appetite. So um, again, I mean, there are these associations we've been able to identify, you know, pretty much across the board. Uh, and there are correlates between the gut microbiome and disease uh development later in life, like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's. Uh, but because the gut microbiome is a whole ecosystem, it's really complex. Uh, we have all these microbes interacting with one another. We haven't been able to establish any cause and effect relationships with the gut microbiome and any outcome. Uh, and we haven't even really been able to do that with microbes. I mean, the closest we've gotten to is H. pylori, because one early researcher decided to drink an H. pylori cocktail to try and prove that like it caused <laughs> a little, a little certain- research. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. That's real dedication. Yeah. but, but he actually didn't develop ulcers. He developed gastritis, which is just inflammation. And so, um, even that microbe, which is kind of like a a stereotypical, you know, causal microbe with, uh, with peptic ulcers, there's still some question there. So it's really interesting to see how that plays out.
1: So we know we have these links, but we don't necessarily know what's impacting these Mm -hmm. links. Mm -hmm. Okay. From a lifestyle perspective, do we know what are some things that we can do to promote good gut health? obviously eating fiber is one of them, which you already Mm -hmm.
0: said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would say like having a plant centric diet, um, we don't necessarily have to eat a vegan or a vegetarian diet. When we compare outcomes from a prudent omnivorous diet, something would be like Mediterranean diet or dietary approaches to stop hypertension. Both of those dietary patterns are associated with about a 20% reduced risk of colorectal cancer. So, you know, they don't have to be vegetarian or vegan. I just say plant centric. So we just want to make sure that like the foundation of our dietary pattern is plants. And then we add some dairy, we add some lean proteins. We try to limit our intake of sodium, trans fats, saturated fats, and red meat and processed meat. And and otherwise, like we can have a different types of prudent dietary patterns and, and still benefit. And so that's probably one of the most influential factors in terms of modifying the gut microbiome and supporting health, also limiting alcohol. So even um, modest intakes of alcohol, with the exception of red wine, are associated with an increased risk of colorectal cancer. Red wine is, a, is still a little bit puzzling. We don't really have the as strong of a relationship, and we also don't have as strong of a relationship between red wine and reduced microbial diversity. So kind of still remains to be seen. Um, But again, it would be still, you know, it's still wise to, to moderate that because it's still alcohol. The other aspect would be physical activity. We don't have a clear picture of Uh, exactly whether it's exercise that influences the microbiome or it's the dietary patterns that people who exercise usually follow. (laughs) Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. They're usually gonna be a prudent dietary pattern. Um, And there are some studies that show that exercise doesn't have its own independent effect. And then there are a couple that do. So it's still kind of a 50-50 split but people who have high levels of cardiovascular fitness and engage in regular aerobic activity, they tend to have higher levels of microbial diversity, uh, which we generally regard as a good thing. And they have especially high levels of uh, beneficial microbes and butyrate producers. And butyrate is a short chain fatty acid that microbes make by fermenting the dietary fibers. And that butyrate is used as an energy source by intestinal cells, and it also uh, plays a role in regulating insulin sensitivity, potentially appetite, metabolic flexibility. Uh, So that is a really beneficial short-chain fatty acid. So there's a theory that perhaps, you know, diet and exercise kind of form this this triad with, uh, you know, a diverse set of microbes that have altogether a really beneficial impact on human health. Um, and, and that, uh, our dietary pattern probably mediates that to some extent, because there's at least one study that's shown, uh, in bodybuilders that those who had a fiber deficient diet, even though they were physically active uh, didn't have the same level of microbial diversity as the bodybuilders who were eating adequate fiber. And, um, the, okay. those with, with inadequate fiber, they looked a little bit more like the sedentary participants.
2: Mm, imagine it, it, all, it all, comes down to diet and exercise once again. Right. I, I, I mean, know. really the, what we talk about all the time. The factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had a question about artificial sweeteners and the gut I hear, you know, all the time like artificial sweeteners, we're in the gut, you know, um, what are your thoughts or
0: expertise on that? Yeah. Based on the, the amount of evidence that we have in humans so far, which is limited to some extent, it Mm -hmm. doesn't look like artificial sweeteners have much of an impact on either the gut microbiome or gut derived hormones. It's probably because they are somewhat inert in terms of interacting with the microbiome with the exception of aspartame, that's two amino acids. They could potentially metabolize that, but that hasn't shown to have any effect on the microbiome. Uh, there is one lab that has put out a couple of publications in rodent models and in humans. So, so usually they'll do two cohorts. They'll have like a human cohort and then they'll use rodents as well. Um, sometimes utilizing a fecal uh, microbiome transplant. So they'll take the human, uh, participant. Yeah. And they'll take a fecal sample from them and put it into a mouse. And then they'll see how that, you know, the, the metabolism of the mouse that blows my mind. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And fecal transplants, I mean, they've been around for a little while. Um, They're kind of they're, they're really helpful for looking at like mechanisms, but there are some some limitations to those as well because a a mouse intestine is still a mouse intestine. And so you end up with a mouse flavored, you know, human microbiome. But uh, some of the issues with those studies are super physiological doses that they're using in rodents, you know, so it's not an amount that a human would normally eat. They've also used um, what some people call pseudo replication. So they take one person's fecal sample and put it into five rodents. And then they um, analyze that statistically as being an NO5. And that could be appropriate in some cases. But if we're trying to determine like an individual's, like if we're trying to say that that's like representative of the human, some people argue that that should be an N of one because it was from one human, if that makes sense. Or yeah, you yeah. data. And then also in the most recent publication that they put out, they had the participants do their glucose tolerance test at home, which is really not, that's not up to par with like research standards. They have put out a couple of publications that implicate artificial sweeteners and things like insulin resistance and, you know, just kind of general perturbations in terms of metabolic flexibility, but by and large, the rest of the data really doesn't show that. And even if we look at like, you know, the influence of people drinking diet soda on, you know, insulin sensitivity and weight management and whatnot, it does not get in the way of weight loss. Over right. time. Yep.
1: So. Which we, we yell off the top of a mountain. Literally we, we climbed a mountain. Right. That, so. <laughs> I love that. So talking about the fecal transplants, then that's interesting. So what about from a human to human perspective, if you see a fecal transplant, do you see the microbiome change then as a result of that, whether the transplant, you know, that they received had a healthier bacteria, essentially?
0: Mm -hmm. It most often does. Uh, So we do most often see a shift and we would call, we would turn that person a a responder. There are also non-responders who will receive a fecal transplant, but there's not a significant shift in their gut microbiome. In most cases, a fecal transplant is effective in humans for treating C. difficile that hasn't responded to antibiotic treatments. A fecal transplant is pretty much like the most effective thing that a person can do to treat C diff that's been resistant to other treatments. So yeah, it's, it's really impressive to see how that as, is so effective in other applications. It's not as effective and it's not really as promising. So it's been used in inflammatory bowel disease, but it doesn't seem to actually reverse the disease process or like, or arrest it. So people aren't, you know, cured of their inflammatory bowel disease, Um, There's even been some cases, very few, where a fecal transplant made the inflammatory bowel disease worse or um, may have even initiated some sort of similar disease process in a previously healthy person. Um, So it's not without risk, uh, the fecal transplants. And and certainly if someone's trying to do them at home or something, a DIY fecal transplant, that can be fatal. So it's important to (laughs) leave that to the trained clinicians. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and then they've also tried to do fecal transplants as an intervention for obesity uh, and metabolic disease. And it doesn't appear to be effective for that either, which is, which is in contrast to what we see in rodents, because in rodents, uh, fecal transplant really transfers like almost any, any phenotype, like disease processes, obesity, leanness, even behavioral modifications. Now, that being said, yeah, there was a fairly recent publication put out that um, kind of took a critical view of, of the improbable efficacy of fecal transplant saying, you know, how is it that these are effectively transferring whatever we're trying to transfer, you know, in 98% of cases? That's really, really unlikely that something so new would be almost 100% effective. So there's probably, probably some, you know, we, we do have publication bias that's kind of known, but there's, there could be some bias there where people are saying, oh yeah, you know, the, these rodents are definitely behaving now as though they have some sort of mood disorder. You know, the, these rodents definitely are exhibiting anxiety like behaviors that could be maybe a uh, too generous of uh, an interpretation of their behavior.
1: Which also goes to show that my, my studies don't really tra- necessarily translate to human studies, right? We, that's why we have human clinical studies.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like rodents are great for a proof of concept or like mechanisms I had mentioned, but we need to see that play out in humans as well. If we're going to make recommendations for our human clients. So this all this talk about
2: fecal transplants. What, what exactly is that? And when you said, talk about like, don't do this at home. Like what, what, I want to know for personally, like, yeah. what it what is
0: this? <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, a fecal transplant is just how it sounds. So, okay. we are transferring the fecal matter from one organism to another. That can be done uh, via the oral route. So, we can encapsulate the sample, and then a person takes. Some number of these capsules you know multiple times a day for some period of time and then it can also be done via a a colonoscopy like prep or an enema like prep i should say so quite often they'll have a person do a colonoscopy prep first to clear out uh, a large portion of the microbes that are present and then they'll provide one or multiple uh, essentially enemas of the fecal sample fecal slurry is what they call it And ostensibly the microbes that you're ingesting or inserting take up residence there because we're, it's uh, more readily done from human to human. Like we have a human digestive tract and that is the environment in which human associated microbes will thrive. Uh, if we take that from a human to a rodent model, quite a, a you know a number of human-associated microbes will survive, but not all of them. And so we really don't completely re- recapitulate the human microbiome in a rodent model. Okay, wow. Claire's night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, it makes sense. Fecal. It makes sense. <laughs> totally. Don't want to like make a fecal slurry in a blender at home. <laughs> That's not a good idea. Yeah.
1: No. But I mean, unfortunately, some nefarious person online could say to do that. And then that's the next trend that we see. And that's how social media just fucking goes. And it's mind blowing.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people are, you know, drink and inject their own urine. So I don't put it past anyone to drink their own feces or someone else's, right?
2: Yeah. I'm, And also I've been seeing, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but parents giving their children parasite cleanses.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's a big one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can't be, can't be good. No, because sometimes what they're, they're essentially feeding them like a diluted bleach and it Seriously? sloughs off. Yeah. Yeah. And it sloughs off some layers of the intestinal wall. And then when that comes out, they think that it's like a, an intestinal parasite. Um, and it's not, so yeah, it's really tragic. I mean, to see yeah. kind of how people will, will unintentionally harm themselves or others because they just don't know any better. And, and mm-hmm. they're listening to people who also don't know any better.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, so yeah, the person that I know that that was promoting this, of course, was selling, she was involved in an MLM selling as a supplement for that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah. God. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh yeah.
1: So on the opposite end of the spectrum for lifestyle, what are some things in our lifestyle that could promote potentially, you know, a lesser healthy microbiome?
0: Mm-hmm. So there'd be some obvious things like smoking. <laughs> I mean, and and I think smoking has like become less popular, but if a person is smoking, um, you know, that would be uh, one to work on quitting, drinking more than one alcoholic beverage per day, Uh, with the exception of wine, you know, being sedentary, maybe, I mean, we don't necessarily know, even though being not sedentary is associated with increased microbial diversity, we don't necessarily know that being sedentary is associated with reduced microbial diversity, but it's probably a better idea to be physically active.
1: It's good advice, nonetheless. (laughs) Right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Other correlates would be having obesity that is associated with increased levels of certain receptors and the compounds that combine to receptors that cause kind of low levels of inflammation. We call this metabolic endotoxemia. And that's part of what's been blamed for insulin resistance, like metabolic inflexibility. So we're insulin resistant and we're also not like fully breaking down fatty acids. A non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So that's another thing that's associated with lifestyle. So that's linked to increased intestinal permeability, which could also play a role in metabolic dysregulation. Short-term, really intense endurance exercise in the heat is probably also not great for your intestinal tract. Okay. <laughs> or you in general. Like if you're doing that and you're not hydrating and fueling properly, that's obviously going to be, you know, a risk to your own health. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, eating a diet that is completely devoid of fiber, like, you know, the carnivore diet or eating a really a highly refined diet, those are associated with reduced microbial diversity. So that would be, and then obviously, you know, if we're eating a lot of red meat or processed meat and saturated fat, that would be an increased risk of colorectal cancer. And then also not having the, you know, protective impact of fruits, veggies, and whole grains. So that could potentially be setting someone up for a disease later in life. Okay. Uh, so those are probably the biggest, like, modifiable factors. The ones that you wouldn't be in charge of <laughs> would be your genes. So there's some influence of genetics on the microbiome and disease risk, obviously, the mode of birth. So if you were born via C section, and then if you were not breastfed, you might be at slightly higher risk of developing um, allergies and eczema later in life. Um, yeah, so, and, you know, again, there, there are associations. We can't say that it's cause and effect, but it's something that, that has been, um, shown frequently enough. And, and there are also, um, there's mechanistic data to, to support that, but yeah, those are, those are kind of the most significant factors. And I do want to point out that the, the vast majority of our microbiome really isn't easily modifiable by lifestyle factors. like a large chunk of it is based on your species, (laughs) like, because we're humans, we have a, um, a a human core microbiome, and then our geographic location. And that probably is a a number of factors, you know, environmental factors and whatnot. And, um, you know, genes, if we're, you know, living where around our parents and whatnot, that constitutes another significant Proportion of our microbes. So essentially, you can have a healthy individual in Japan uh, that's going to look significantly different from a healthy individual in the U.S. Just because of where they're located. They're both considered healthy, but it matters because when we are trying to determine like whether someone's microbiome uh, is healthy, we have to have a healthy control, right? Well. If you are being compared to healthy controls in the United States, but you're Japanese, you might be mislabeled as having dysbiosis just because you're different from the healthy controls. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem with your microbiome. It's just different from that set of healthy controls. So what we're really lacking is sort of like a universal cohort of this is healthy that we could like compare others too. Uh, and there was a, a Belgian study that I can't recall who the author was, but they mentioned that we would need something like 80,000 healthy samples or, or samples from 80,000 healthy participants to be able to just start creating. A from basis.
1: all over the world too, I'm assuming. Yes,
0: exactly. Um, wow, yeah. And yeah, So
1: <laughs> That's next to impossible, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it would be very difficult to do that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like hopefully where we're headed
1: that we can do okay. that. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So, from a non-science perspective, what is it that you do with people, and how do you, and how do you pe- help people with your coaching program? Because I know you're a coach as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do, um, a, you know, some amount of just gut health education. Okay. Uh, if a person has questions about, you know, um, a test that they might want to do, that is, uh, you know, a direct-to-consumer test, or They want some information about like dietary modifications or supplementation for, you know, just general GI distress. So it's not disease management, but it's information that can help them to feel more comfortable in terms of their, you know, digestive process and and also make more informed decisions. But the vast majority of what I do is actually not gut health related at all. (laughs) And it's actually about my clients' relationships with Food and body image. Um, so, one thing that I've said uh, in the past is that our relationship with food is really an outward manifestation of our relationship with ourselves. So, the narratives that we have about ourselves, you know, the beliefs that we have about our our willpower, our self discipline, you know, whether or not we trust ourselves, whatever messages we've internalized about, you know, whatever weight stigma we've internalized, that's going to influence the way that we behave around food, and quite often that can progress into a place where we're feeling out of control around food. We have a lot of guilt and shame. We're very critical of our bodies. We overvalue our appearance, you know, at the expense of appreciating other things about ourselves. And we end up feeling really controlled by our diet and really not flourishing. And so what I do is I help people to reestablish a healthy relationship with food and, and body And and that's why when I say that health isn't easy to define, it's because health is more than just our physical health. And so I help clients with flourishing health, which is about all domains of health. So our physical, psychological, philosophical, and and social forms of health. Yeah. Amazing. It's all encompassing. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Where can people
1: learn more about what you do and contact you?
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm vitamin PhD on Instagram. My website is vitaminphdnutrition.com. And they can also, uh, if they want to check out things that I've written it would be barbend.com and then also examine.com. All right. Well, we'll be sure awesome. to find all of those outlets. Yeah, there. absolutely. Thank you
2: so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having
1: me. So thankful to connect with you.
2: Yes, absolutely. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So why not share it with a friend who needs to hear it? Send us a DM on Instagram or email us at cutthecrappod at gmail.com and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cutthecrappodcast. As always, we appreciate you and thanks for being here.